Happy summer to all of our Capitalism listeners. Some of you may have noticed a trend in our last few episodes. Luigi and I have been trying to interrogate from a variety of angles. One of the most fundamental questions in capitalism today, did neoliberalism get it right or wrong? We spoke with Glenn Hubbard, the former Bush administration economist and Columbia dean, whose new book, The Wall and the Bridge, is mostly a defense of neoliberalism. We spoke with Oren Cass, the executive director of American Compass, which is trying to define a new conservative ideology in the wake of what he and others view as neoliberalism's failure. And we spoke with Francis Fukuyama, whose new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, is a broader look at what liberal is a broader look at what liberalism itself is and isn't. But Luigi and I felt like we hadn't yet come to a satisfactory conclusion or given our own comprehensive views on the question. So on this episode, we're going to do one big capital is, isn't segment. Is neoliberalism a capital is or a capital isn't? I'm Bethany McLean. Did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism? and whether greed's a good idea. And I'm Luigi Zingales. We have socialism for the very rich, rugged individualism for the poor. And this is Capital Isn't, a podcast about what is working in capitalism. First of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? And most importantly, what isn't? We ought to do better by the people that get left behind. I don't think we should have killed the capital system in the process. What I would like to do, because there's so much confusion, and, and one of the things I appreciated of Francis Fukuyama is that he defined things to begin with. So I think we should define some of the terms, in my view, to distinguish between the version of liberalism that is mostly political, that is what uh, Fukuyama was talking about, from the economic component the, the, that goes under now the term neoliberalism. I don't know whether this is a good term or not, but that is the one that Hubbard is trying to, was trying to defend and Owen Cass was trying to criticize. And I saw a definition of neoliberalism uh, uh, given by a Marxist author, David uh, Harvey, which I think is quite agreeable. And it says, it is a phil- philosophy where human well-being can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong property rights, free markets, and free trade. But I, I'm happy to define neoliberalism in the narrow sense, where basically you're saying you can trade without restrictions and, and markets have very little rules. That was the version of liberalism or economic liberalism that prevailed from uh, 1990 to at least 2007. And do you think it was the global financial crisis that was the first crack in the neoliberal economic foundation? And perhaps saying neoliberal and economic is redundant because neoliberal may imply economic. But was that the first crack in the foundation of it? Or would you would you point to something earlier? So I think the financial crisis was was a a major awakening uh, issue. But after that is the realization that the promise of neoliberalism is that we are going to bring better prosperity for everyone was failing. This is the time where the fact that you didn't see a rise in real wages for the median uh, white male worker for 40 or 50 years started to become uh, an important factor that people started to focus on. The promise of a, a better future was not shared by the majority of Americans. And so we can see the evidence that it failed in the sense that the, its promises were not borne out. Do you have a clear answer as to why it failed? 
as to what was what what fundamentally philosophically is wrong with the idea of neoliberalism, with the ideas embodied in neoliberalism? Why doesn't it work? I will distinguish between uh, two versions of two problems. One is if you take neoliberalism in the most extreme form where you say there should be no regulation and uh, you believe that markets have correct perfectly and blah, blah, blah. I think that that is blatantly false and not particularly interesting to discuss. So let's take a, a more interesting question, which is even if you intervene properly, you regulate, you, you try to make sure that uh, markets work relatively well. What is not guaranteed in the system is that everybody within your politically defined nation is going to benefit from prosperity. And this is uh, obvious. And so the neoliberalists never said that, for example, free trade will benefit everybody. But the idea was, oh, the benefits are large enough that you can redistribute and make sure that everybody will benefit. And that is the premise under which NAFTA was approved back in 1993, whatever it was. And, and I think there were some small attempts to uh, do some redistribution, but, but very, very uh, small. And the major, in my view, mistake that was done at the beginning of the 2000s was let China enter the WTO without some form of soft landing. Because the aspect that I don't think is emphasized enough is that historically we have seen a major shift from manufacturing to the third sector. But this has always been in relative terms, not in absolute terms, until the beginning of the 2000s. So if the share of employment manufacturing is dropping, but the number of people working in manufacturing doesn't drop, means that the child of an auto worker is going to become a webmaster, which is something relatively easy to do with a decent educational system. We can come back how decent the educational system is, but let's assume a decent educational system. Now, it's very different if you start from uh, a, a 20 million uh, manufacturing job and you go down to 13 million manufacturing jobs. So this is absolute number dropping, which means you have to take a 45, 50-year-old auto worker and transform him into a nurse or into a uh, webmaster. And that is extremely, extremely hard. And nobody at the time thought about this. And uh, everybody, including myself, is to blame, even if I'm not a trade economist, etc. But uh, I wasn't there pounding my, my fist and saying we should pay more attention to this. That was a major mistake. We should have put some sand in the uh, grain of uh, liberalization to allow a smooth landing rather than a abrupt uh, uh, shift. Some of this does speak to the importance of intersectional debates in the sense that if we had recognized the interplay between a failing educational system and neoliberalism, then maybe things would have been, been different because we were relying on an educational system that no longer existed to be able to take the child of the auto worker and make them into the, into the webmaster in a way that our educational system, our public school educational system was no longer in many places capable, capable of doing. And so that's one part of the problem. And then sociologically speaking, I think we also didn't recognize the way in which poverty very quickly becomes ingrained. In other words, that if that child of the auto worker is going to a failing public school and living in a family that is that is mired in poverty, that 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 in and of itself is going to be is going to be enough to change to, to, to change the debate or to change the face of neoliberalism. 
Yeah, I, I think that the the problem of uh, elimination of jobs in general, we think that uh, oh, we destroy all jobs and the economy naturally create new ones. And I tend to believe that on average that is true. But there is the problem of speed, but in particular the problem of adaptation of, of human conditions. And uh, it's easier to move to some job to other than 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 to some other job to other. So I think that uh, when uh, Italy became uh, a more manufacturing power. Uh, it shed, this is immediately after World War II, there was a, a lot of shedding of workers from uh, agriculture. But they found an immediate occupation in manufacturing. Why? Because a set of skills were fairly similar. And so there was a, a massive uh, migration and it wasn't perfect, but it was not as devastating as what we've seen in the Midwest in the last uh, 20 years. I think it's a failure to recognize, and it, just back to my point, it speaks to the importance of being able to think outside of your own narrow field, because this speaks to the importance of a broader sociological understanding of the impact that changes are going to have and how they may spill out in, in, in different ways, in a way that we're often not accustomed to, to thinking, and, um, and, and paying attention to what's happening on the ground, because if you had paid attention to what's happening on the ground instead of being immersed in the theory of neoliberalism, then you probably would have, you probably would have seen a long time ago that that things that things were not playing out as they were supposed to, and and and, and people did. I do think, though, I worry a little bit that by focusing exclusively, well, we have so far in this conversation on how neoliberalism went wrong, that we are letting liberalism off the hook a little bit, too. Because I, one of the, the things I took away from our conversations about liberalism, particularly Fukuyama's book, is that it the system of ideas as it was were never implemented in the real world. It, the philosophy was, was different than the implementation. The philosophy applied to white wealthy men for a period of time, but it didn't apply to people of color. It didn't apply to women. So it was enacted in a way that wasn't that that wasn't commensurate with its philosophical ideals. And so I think liberalism, uh, the way in which while the, while the concept of liberalism may be may be very ideal in, in many ways, the way in which it's been implemented through history has in many ways been an, been an abdication of some of the fundamental precepts of liberalism. Yeah, but I'm a little bit more optimistic on that front because uh, you can't expect any idea to be implemented perfectly, especially at the beginning. And the, the change has been so far in the right direction. So when, when liberalism was introduced, was not even uh, all white men was only sort of the one that owned some property or were educated, but then was extended to all men and then to women and then and to people of uh, different colors. So in that sense, I see a progress. I see a, a good uh, uh, direction. My concern is the fact that liberalism is not able to provide you a, a sense of nation and belonging. A, a liberal system needs a nation state to enforce certain rights, but has no theory of, of nation. And if we really take it seriously, the, the biggest contradiction, if you take it seriously, then we should have one person, one vote in the entire world, right? But no one in the right uh, frame of mind, especially if you're born in the United States, think that you want to implement a one share, one vote over the entire world. So then the question is, who is in and who is out? And the liberal attitude is, everybody can get in and out. We are open to immigration. There is no restriction. But uh, that is, first of all, not feasible. We're not ready to have 
a billion people in the United States tomorrow. But two, if you have free entry, you can't really promise a minimum decent level to your citizens. So either you have a social contract that includes also some uh, safety net or what it means to be a citizen. But then if you have a social contract that have a safety net, you cannot have free entry because it will attract everybody in the world. It will make the system not sustainable. So you need to somehow decide whether you have a liberal world in which uh, everybody is a citizen of the world, uh, but there is no safety net and there is no distribution whatsoever, or there is a sense of nation. But if there is a sense of nation, number one, what is the, the boundary? And number two, you need to enforce those boundaries. You should stop having people in or at least restrict uh, massively entry uh, and at some level, maybe even restrict trade. Yeah, it seems to me there's a more fundamental philosophical question underneath what you're asking, which is, does a belief in the kind of liberalism that you're describing require a belief in meritocracy? And if you've started to question whether a, merito- a true meritocracy can ever exist, can you, can you actually embrace the kind of liberal world order that you're describing? Because if we agree that the grounds of, of competition are themselves unfair, which some of our critics of meritocracy have, then that pure version of liberalism, even if it even if it were workable, is, is still not, can still never live up to the ideal. But you may disagree with that framing. I'm actually more radical than, than you say. Even if you don't touch the issue of uh, meritocracy and how fair meritocracy is and uh, equality of starting point, etc., the question is, there is risk involved. If you want to provide some safety, uh, a safety net for workers, if, what does it mean? What does it imply to be an American versus to be a Nigerian? Do I get some benefit just for the sake of being American or not? And if the answer is I don't have any benefit, then why should I participate to the social contract? And if I have some benefits, it means that the people in Nigeria probably don't have the same benefits. So it means some discrimination, that we're not all the same and and, uh, being American is worth more than being Nigerian. I hear you and understood that. I meant that there was also a a fundamental question, another fundamental question to be be asked around that. And I think those, I think the two questions side by side are both real challenges to the to the implementation of liberalism. But one of one of the things I was thinking about as I as I tried to think through this and, and as to what the the solution should be is embrace the messy. That and, and sort of back to your point that the real problems with all of this began when it looked like liberalism had won. When there were challenges to it, when there was messiness, the system actually did better. And perhaps if we embrace these contradictions in the implementation of of, of of liberalism, of of free markets, that that uh, that embrace of it may the that embracing the messy may be the way forward. And I was thinking when I looked back, there was a great essay by Martin Wolf, um, a wonderful FT writer, about what was going wrong in this 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 kind of era of crises. Um, and he had pointed back to 1944 when these two books were published by emigres from Vienna. One, The Road to Serfdom, by you know by Hayek, arguing against the incoming tide of socialism, and the other, The Great Transformation, which I didn't know, by Karl Polanyi, basically arguing that this this tide of 
of, of socialism was the inescapable result of the 19th century free market. And that's why I had said that this debate, although the, the, although the circumstances around it have been very different, but this debate does go back a very, a very long time. What we're living through now isn't, it's new in the crises that are, that are bringing us to this point, but it's not, the debate itself is not new. And so I, I was thinking that, that the messiness was actually a key to the way forward, that the, the different ideas and the idea that you can't live with a pure, that pure philosophies um, are dangerous when you try to enact them, practically speaking. Does that make sense? It does. But I think there is also something else which is quite important and I think is not fully appreciated is the period uh, that the French called the Le Trente Glorieuse, the, the 30 glorious years that go basically from 45 to 75, has been glorious for Western Europe, not for the rest of the world. To some extent, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, particularly American workers, but even European workers at, at some level, were in a particular privileged position. Not only did they emerge as uh, the winner of the war, uh, they have a superior technology, but also the only places where you could do business safely was basically the United States and maybe a couple of countries in, in, in Western Europe. But not even, in this is my own country, Italy was at risk of becoming a communist country. Uh, and so was France. So many people were afraid of doing massive investment in those countries. And so you, you were in a moment in which you have a superior technology, a superior organizational form, and a workforce that was massively more educated than the rest of the world. The United States pioneer high school mandatory schooling in the early part of the 20th century. So by 1945, if I remember correctly, that like 43% of the workforce with high school. When uh, in Italy, there was still a significant fraction of the population that was illiterate, not to mention the rest of the world. So you had this conversion of factors that made educated American workers a scarce factor that was earning a rent. And that rent is basically what created the middle class, what created the, uh, the success of the 40s and 50s and, and 60s. And what happened afterward is that the rest of the world caught up. And first was the rest of the Western world, but then was the rest of the world at large. The, the, the Soviet bloc collapsed, uh, China caught up. And, and today you can safely invest in Vietnam, a place that until relatively recently, we were bombing like crazy, okay? So that really opened up the world to American investment, made the American workers more disposable, at the same time in which uh, our educational system was getting worse and everybody's educational system was getting tremendously better. A again, China in 1945 was massively illiterate. China today has on average of education, at least basic education, which is probably better than the United States. And so the non-college educated American worker was at the top of the world in 1945. And I wouldn't say it's the bottom of the world today, but is in the middle of the pack, probably below the middle of the pack in, in, in the grand scheme of things in the world. While at the same time, the upper echelon of the American society is doing great. Why? Because they are not only at the top of the United States, they're literally at the top of the world. And everybody reads the New York Times, everybody reads the American books, everybody listens to the American songs, and, and you keep going. And, and so if I am a, 
a, a great singer in America. I make uh, a bazillion versus uh, the only millions I was making 50 years ago. So this as uh, the globalization has really reduced dramatically the payoff of average American and enrich uh, beyond reasonable level the upper end of the distribution. So are you arguing that liberalism never worked? In other words, when I say that my way forward would be an embrace of a messy form of, of key liberal liberal concepts, are you arguing for something more radical than that, that it never worked, that it was only an accident of timing and history that it appeared to work for a period of time or an accident of where you happen to be situated on, on, on this curve? Or are you arguing, are you not arguing that? Or are you arguing that perhaps this crisis in liberalism and neoliberalism is from the perspective of the American worker and that if we looked someplace else like China, like Indian, we might see something else. And so that perhaps our, our idea of this of a crisis is also rooted in, in, in time and perspective. Um, I something in between probably. So for, from the perspective of, of these developing countries, uh, the last 40 years have been great. The problem is it's not been great for the entire nations of the United States. There have not been enough redistribution to make everybody better off. And so what is colliding, in my view, is a global system without boundaries with electoral system or a nation, nation state uh, with very clear boundaries. This is what Danny Roderick, an economist, uh, claimed that is the, the trilemma that you cannot have at the same time a free market system, uh, at least a free trade system, democracy, and national uh, st nation state. And uh, you have to give up one of the three. Hmm. Do you think that's true, that you have to give up one of the three? I fear it is true. I, I wish it was, was not. But I think that what I, I've seen recently is that that's probably the case. Huh. But does it have to be that extreme? Back to my concept that you can embrace the messy. Does it have to be that you have embrace for lack of maybe maybe messy is the wrong way to describe it, the, the less than pure. So do you have to give up on these concepts or can you embrace now I'm sounding like Glenn Hubbard. I want to build bridges. Um, <laughs> Can, can you can you build bridges so that you can still have these concepts in place while having a greater appreciation for a greater ability to recognize the ways in which the economic impacts may be playing out in ways you don't anticipate and and fixing that? Or do you think the fundamental philosophical issue here is belief in one's own nation and belief in one's own country? Same thing, sorry. And that that's going to fray um, inevitably under this other uh, under a liberal world order. I don't see a substitute in the nearest end of the nation state. And so we need to have nation states. And uh, I would like to live in a democracy. And so it's necessary to have some form of safety net and a national state. And I think that having complete free capital and labor movement and trade really undermines the ability to have these this national policies. And then that really puts at risk the, the democratic system. So I would like to have all three, but if I have to give up some, I will give up to uh, the, the, the total uh, free mobility of uh, goods and capital. 
But then we have to distinguish between what a country can do with redistribution inside itself versus what a country might want to do on, on, on the notion of free trade with other countries. Because then it does seem to me that if you really restrict free trade with other countries and have tariffs in place and penalize other other countries, that, that you are creating an unsafer world. And making an unsafer world in the end is the most damaging thing you can you can possibly do. So maybe that does argue then for a policy a policy of redistribution within own, one's own country rather than a policy of trying to close national borders. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I want to be very clear. There is no part of me that wants to close national borders. The issue is the definition of free trade has shifted from let's not pull barriers to let's basically have trade policy run by multinationals. I don't know if you know, but the, the, the Pacific uh, TTP agreement, uh, trade, uh, Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, when, when Omega was in it, included some provisions that will make easy for multinationals to sue national government and force them to do what they wanted. And it's only when the, the U.S. got out of that train that they dropped that and they made it actually a better trade deal. My fear is that neoliberalism has basically captured some terms, made them a slogan, and uh, changed the substance. When you say free trade, we interpret you, do, you shouldn't put unjustified barriers, but in fact now is let's have large multinational decide what is allowed, what is not. When you say free market, instead of having competitive market, say we let companies decide what to do and so on and so forth. So it, it is it has really transformed a, a world that was like pro-competitive market into a pro-business proposition with very, very negative distributional consequences. That's really interesting. And maybe I'll go back to where we started this conversation, which is it really is all in the definitions. And maybe part of what would help us move forward is to be very, very clear when you say free trade, what it is that you mean. It's also there, there, there really is no such thing because even quote free trade is preconditioned, free to whom, and free free in what respect, and that part of what's gone wrong with the United States and China is the different rules in both countries. The U.S. has respect for intellectual property. China has not. The U.S. has had basic standards in place for workers. China, China has not. In that case, there's no such thing as what's, what's free trade when the, the criteria that each country is using is so radically different. So maybe part of, part of the solution or part of the way forward is to be very, very clear definitionally about what we mean and what the framework is that this is based on. And I think this is where the triumph of liberalism after the fall of the Berlin Wall intoxicated us all and made it easier for people to push some ideas to the extreme without the public noticing. So under the, the ban or under the flag of we're all liberal now, we went to excesses that would have been challenged in a more dialectic, uh, struggling world. It's interesting because liberalism, as Fukuyama pointed out, was fomented in a period of intense, intense discomfort, um, intense conflict. And, you know, the, the fear I have after reading his book is that it can only find its way forward in a period of another and another period of, of, of intense discord, that it needs that to be reforged. But what you're saying is interesting because it also points to the opposite, which is that a period of lack of challenge and of 
seeming economic well well being has also been very dangerous for it, <laughs> and so perhaps there's 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 oddly or has, has been very dangerous for the idea itself. So there's this odd there's this odd juxtaposition in that a uh, time of great challenge in the world has been a time where liberalism has found its its footing, and a time of seeming ease in in in, in the world in in many ways was a time where liberalism lost its mooring. If you're enjoying the discussions Luigi and I are having on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show you should also check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the stories behind the pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. Change how you see the world and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago podcast network. I think there is no alternative to the political liberalism, or at least the alternatives are much, much worse than what is out there. The question is, can political liberalism survive without a better support from the economic system? Uh, there is a line of thoughts of people that you can have a liberal democracy regardless of what kind of economy you run. And I think that that's not true. If you have extreme inequality, it's very hard to, to support a liberal democratic system. And uh, I actually recently visited Tunisia. There, are, there is an enormous amount of income inequality in Tunisia. And you see the people that are from the upper class that say, oh, but we would like to have a Western uh, democracy system, blah, 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 blah. But then they don't want to pay taxes to support this uh, Western democracy system. So you can't have the peace and tranquility of Germany or Sweden and the income inequality of Brazil. And the United States is the best example. I, I always joke that it takes a Latin American economy to have a Latin American president. And I think that uh, most Americans thought that in Latin America, they had Latin American president just because they were from Latin America. That's not true. In the moment you have the same level of inequality, you end up having the same quality of presidents. The fundamental question is, how should our economy change in order to make sure that a liberal democracy is supported politically. But that's the extent of the irony, the extent to which neoliberalism has undermined the fundamental tenets of liberalism, that one doesn't translate to the other, that in order to create liberation for all people, which is the most fundamental tenet of liberalism, that you need an economic system that is more inclusive and that offers, uh, offers support to a broad range of people so that you can really liberate everybody. Often the practical realities have been the opposite of that, that a system meant to liberate everyone has actually been based on the enslavement at times of, of some, and then the economic servitude um, in modern times of, of another set of people. And that one part of the path forward is both acknowledging the failings in, in the past, but also very explicitly making sure that our new definitions include include inclusiveness, both philosophically and as uh, and and practically and practically speaking. And, and the question is, is how to do it, because one group of people think that the solution is to guarantee some uh, minimum income to everybody. It's kind of a form of pacification, and it reminds me very much of the Roman emperor that were distributing free bread and uh, circus uh, shows in order to keep everybody at bay. What we need is to guarantee everybody a real shot at the American dream, otherwise you don't feel you belong. I think that that's really the, the problem. And uh, we are 
moving more and more in a direction where these chances are so small that people don't want to play the game. I like my father, who will hopefully listen to this episode, will like the fact that you invoked Rome because he thinks that nothing new is nothing is new under the sun and that we are slowly, maybe not so slowly anymore, but inevitably following the, the, the course of Rome. And that's a really interesting analogy as well. I've always been, this is kind of an aside, I've always been a little bit suspicious of the idea of universal basic income because a lot of the supporters come out of Silicon Valley. And of course, I think in my conspiracy-oriented little brain that they would like nothing more than to have a giant swath of the population with nothing but time on their hands and disposable income to spend glued in front of their devices. <laughs> I could write a good dystopic fantasy novel based based on that. But yes, I I, I think though I'm not sure this. E- I'm not sure this gets us any closer to an answer in that giving everyone a really legitimate shot at the American dream is a really fraught and difficult proposition in and of itself. And how you do that, the question of how you do that opens up a whole other can of proverbial worms. Yeah, but the other thing that really the discussion with you made me uh, realize is that if we have a, a system with all the formal rules in place, that are all these formal rules, let's say, unbiased, de facto, that system will be massively biased in favor of the more wealthy. So the system needs to be designed with a little bit of populism in mind in order to offset the natural bias toward the wealthy in the implementation. So um, I think it was Jefferson that said that you need uh, a revolution every so many years in order to bring things back to Uh, where they were. I think that there is an element of truth in that. Uh, I think that we need some populists to rebalance the system. And if the system is too imbalanced, you're going to have a very kind of nasty form of populism. But if you have the right dose at the right time, you keep the system balanced. What the conversation with you led me to think is that we do need to rethink liberalism at the foundation. In a sense, neoliberalism is refreshing of uh, all liberalism without a rethinking. And that's what I think is unsustainable today. But uh, a rethinking of what are the, the trade-offs, what are the, the choices, but in the framework of individual freedom and limiting the excess of governments, but also limiting the excess of private power. And, and, uh, I, I think you, you know that there is a tradition in a con- continental European tradition is called order liberalism that uh, see markets as a creation of a legal infrastructure. So you need rules to create markets. So they're very keen on antitrust, for example, and they're very keen on protecting against private power. One of uh, the big mistakes, in my view, of neoliberalism is that it has really attacked the state and vilify the state to the extreme and idealize the the private sector to the extreme. And while I'm the last one to be enamored of the state, state capacity is essential for the working of any government. And we've seen during the pandemic how important that is. And two, private power, especially when it becomes a private monopoly, is even worse than a public monopoly. In those situations, you need the power of the state to fight the power of the excessive power of the private sector. 
Yeah, I, I guess that's another example of what I would call the messiness that you you do. The key idea ingrained, as we've said on different podcasts, but the key idea ingrained in the American um, Constitution that you need you need conflict between powers, and you need a conflict between the state and private enterprise. You need both to be powerful so that they can offset each other's uh, each other's weaknesses. Um, and that if you have the absolute power of government, that corrupts absolutely. If you have the absolute power of private business, that corrupts absolutely. And and in recent decades, we've been tending toward the absolute power of private business, and that that corrupts. And so I think maybe one of the things we're striving toward is what's the right balance. And a lot of our conversations have gotten at this in an oblique way, but what's the right balance between the government and, 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 pri- and private business? And how do you ensure that that balance is not only right to begin with, but is remains remains right going forward? And so the issue is how do you safeguard the balance? I think it's a dynamic process. I don't think that you can set rules in place that will work all the time. You need to have the fluctuation of a democratic endorsement. I think that this is where democracy is, is very important because when uh, the majority of people feel that the pendulum has swung too much in one direction, they're going to help bring it to, to the center and vice versa. I am of the view that in the 70s, the pendulum must have gone too much in uh, and might have gone too much in the direction of uh, uh, centralization, regulation, etc. But certainly now has gone too much in the opposite direction, and and we need to try to bring it to the center. I also think that there needs to be more recognition of how theories are working in practice. And I think that's not appealing to many theoreticians because it's much more appealing to lay out the theory and then not look at the real world evidence of how the theory is playing out. And I think if we had had more focus on this, then we would have realized, and some people did, but we would have realized a long time ago, been forced to realize that neoliberalism wasn't working in the ways that its adherents had had, had said that it, it was. And I think it's human nature to want your philosophy to be right, and then not to want to brook any interference with the purity of your philosophical ideal. But the reality is that that, that charting a good way forward requires an intersection between philosophy and, and reality. Or the way I thought about this in business terms is that we we tend to celebrate visionaries and not give that much credit to those who can execute. And in reality, the world depends on those who can execute the practical implementation of of the idea. And that's, I think, what we need more focus on as we think about the systems that we live by is what's the vision, but then also what's the practical implementation of that idea and how is the practical implementation of that idea backing up the vision? And how is it saying, yeah, this vision maybe isn't isn't all it was cracked up to be. Speaking of, of new philosophical ideas, we heard relatively little in terms of new. One, one idea that was new and interesting is the Owen Cass idea to basically value labor more, factor that into our policy analysis. However, when I push him to deliver some policy implication that did not regard China, and this is a it was clear that he hated China, was a war with, wanted to be a war with China. But let's take China out of the picture for a moment. What, what were the, the big uh, policy ideas outside of China? Is that to ignore the environment? Was that the, the, the message? I, I didn't get a lot. 
I think everybody struggles. <laughs> I mean, I'm a journalist, so what I excel at is diagnosing the problem <laughs> and telling you why it all went wrong. I think, I think I and I think a lot of people struggle with then what precisely do you do to make it better in the future? So I, I want to knock some of our guests for not having more clarity on what you do to make it better in the future, but I recognize that I myself don't either. <laughs> If I were king and queen for a day and had an unlimited amount of money to spend and could get in and adjust attitudes and minds, and if I could do anything, if I could have, if the genie could appear out of the bottle and I could get, then I could get three wishes. My first and biggest one would be to fix the educational system. Actually, I, I, I don't disagree that this is long term is the solution, but I think we're not going to get there unless we change our democracy and we're not going to change our democracy unless we change the system of financing. What has changed dramatically over the years in the United States has been the influence of money in politics. That's the reason why uh, the interest of a lot of uh, ordinary people is completely ignored because they don't count. If you think about all the Republicans that were anti-free trade and until Trump, they never got represented by anybody. Why? Because the people where the money were deciding who was the, the, the more viable candidate. And if you express any opinion on the free trade, you will not go to the second round. So it was like a necessity to be uh, pro-free trade. And uh, I'm not saying that being pro-free trade is bad. I'm just saying that this is an example of the distortion. If we don't fix those distortions, I don't think we can fix anything else, including education. Because honestly, one of the big problems with education is the way it is financed. And if we don't have a better uh, voting system, we're not going to fix that either. So speaking of financing things, I guess if I could start with a, a, it's not necessarily smaller, but perhaps a less grand goal than, than, than fixing education. And this is more of a question than it is a solution, is to rethink the role of debt in our economy. Because my bias is to believe that the growth in consumer credit has also exacerbated inequality, even though the promise has always been the opposite, that the extension of credit will enable those at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum to catch up. And God forbid you do anything to interfere with people's access to credit. But I often think, as it was in the financial crisis, that that's a, a deceptive way of selling people um, credit they can't, they can't afford and further marginalizing people. And I think we should do some episodes on the role of debt in our society and where where, where, its, where its promise has been fulfilled and where it has actually just been a means of, um, of economic subjugation. So I think that what we should do is launch this idea that we should have a new liberalism as different from the neoliberalism. <laughs> what would you call it? I don't think we can call it new liberalism. How about Bethany Luigi liberalism? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they will catch on. I, don't, I have a suspicion that uh, maybe if you say Bethany liberalism sounds better, but... Uh, the Luigi component uh, sounds too much like a pizza place. <laughs> Capital Isn't is a podcast from the University of Chicago Stiegler Center in collaboration with the Chicago Booth Review. Also check out promarket.org, a publication of the Stiegler Center. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to Capital Isn't wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.